0: going to invite you to to read a passage of scripture with me and then we're going to pray we'll do a little review from where we've been thus far in our study of Jonah and then we're going to read the passage from which I'll be preaching which will be our meditation this morning before we begin an exposition of that passage Please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the great Greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Our Father, from this passage of Scripture, we are reminded Of a number of truths about ourselves and about you. We are reminded that we are sinners. Indeed that your wrath abides upon us. And that one day if we repent not. We shall utterly and eternally perish. In our sins. And to do so justly because you're a just God and you must. You must punish sin, but we're reminded also, our dear Father, that you are a gracious and a merciful God and that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We're reminded of the great truth that you grant repentance and faith and you delight in turning away your wrath from justly deserving sinners. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as we are, to see you who as you are, and we would apply to you through Jesus Christ for your grace and mercy. You would grant us afresh the gifts of faith and repentance, that we would turn away from those destructive ways that would lead us ultimately to perdition. And rather you would put our feet upon the narrow road that leads to life. You would grant us that imperishable faith that we read about this morning, though tested by fire, is precious. Mm. And so we pray, our God, that you would do great and marvelous things in this room this day. You would help both preacher and hearer to sit at your feet, to listen, to heed, to do your great work of believing, so do that work in us. Grant us faith this day, maybe faith for the first time to come to know Christ believingly or to renew our faith, to strengthen it, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When we come to our concluding message from the little book of Jonah, we consider Jonah's commission that God gave him to go to Nineveh and to preach to that great and wicked city in chapter 1. We saw Jonah's diversion from God's commission, how, as it were, he God said, go, and he said no, and he wanted to go somewhere else. He put his feet to do just that. God arrested him with a great storm on a ship. And rather than arriving in Tarshish, he ended up in the belly of a great fish. We see in chapter 2 that God had dealings with his prophet in prayer. That he wrestled between doubt and trust. And that he came out on the side of trust. There in the end of chapter 2, he says... But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed, I will pay. There had been a great turnaround in the belly of that great fish and in the heart of Jonah. He confesses that salvation is from the Lord. And we read that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. In chapter three, Jonah is recommissioned. He returns to his commission and and he goes to Nineveh. He preaches the word that God gives him there. And God grants repentance to that wildly wicked city. The greatest city in the world of that day. Known amongst pagans for being wicked in the extreme. We see God. His response to their faith and repentance and relenting of the calamity that he had pronounced upon them. And we read that he didn't do it. We began chapter four last week. And that's what we're going to read today. And we're going to continue our our study in it. Follow with me as I read Jonah chapter four. Really quite an interesting response in Jonah to God's blessing upon the ministry of the word and its evident effect upon the people of Nineveh. And he did not do it. That is how we conclude chapter three. He relented concerning his calamity. Verse one of chapter four. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up, that God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Full stop. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. There we end Well, this morning we're going to look at Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance and God's response. We looked at part one of Jonah's petulance, his petulant response in verses one through three last week. And we looked at part one of Jehovah's patience in verse four. And now we revisit Jonah in his petulance and God in his patience in verses 5 through 11. Notice with me then, verses 5 through 11, Jonah's petulance. You say, what's petulance? I don't use that word very often. Pastor Steve, what does that mean? Well, it means to be sullen, to be irritable, to be angry, to be discontent to be peevish, you know, just to be out of sorts, like you got up on the wrong side of the bed and you've been on that side of the bed all the rest of the day. I know none of you ever been like that, but that's what the word means. And so this word petulance accurately describes Jonah's attitude following Nineveh's repentance. But brethren, what we must see here is that Jonah's problem is not so much with these penitent Assyrians. No, his problem is ultimately with God. In fact, when we have what we call problems with people and problems with circumstances in our life, we really have problem with the God of those people and the one who's sovereign over our circumstances. The buck of our problem, we really lay at God's feet, whether we say it it or not. So we're reminded here of an important lesson. If our hearts are not right with the Lord, we are not going to be right with other people. We're not going to be right with our situation in life. The least little thing will set us off. The necessary relationship between the two chief commandments in the law of God assumes this. You see, if we don't strive to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind, we cannot, we will not seek to love and to show kindness to other people. If we're not right with God, we're going to be wrong with people. You see, our essential relationship in all of life is with the Lord. So as we look at Jonah's petulance. We're going to look first at its fruits and then at its roots. Notice, first of all, the evil fruits of Jonah's petulance. Let's ponder the display of his peevishness. Notice, first of all, that Jonah pouted pouted over Nineveh's repentance. When Jonah reached Nineveh, God gave him a message in no uncertain terms of impending inescapable judgment. That was what he was to preach to the Ninevites. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it would appear that immediately the whole city, from the king on down to the lowest citizen, turned from their violence and from their wickedness, and they pleaded with God to mercifully spare them from deserved judgment. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They knew what they deserved from God. And they pleaded that he wouldn't give them what they deserve, but what they don't deserve. And that's his mercy. God's justice is always required. His mercy is not always required. But what Jonah saw in the response of Nineveh wasn't what he hoped for. No, instead, Nineveh's repentance irked Jonah in the extreme. It bothered him right down to his socks. He just couldn't put up with it rationally. Matthew Henry further suggests that the Ninevites would have received Jonah as an angel from the Lord. For him only to snub them and all their overtures of kindness and hospitality. Put his nose up, set his jaw, walks away Henry writes, We may suppose that the Ninevites, giving credit to the message he brought, were ready to entertain the messenger that brought it and show him respect, that they would have made him welcome to the best of their houses and tables. But Jonah was out of humor, would not accept their kindness, nor behave towards them with common civility, he retires, goes out of the city, sits alone, keeps silence because he sees the Ninevites repent and reform. Perhaps he told those about him that he went out of the city for fear of perishing in the ruins of it. I want to get out of here because the fire's going to fall and I don't want to be touched by the flame. So I'm going to go outside of town a safe distance to the east So this rising sun will light the city so I'll be able to see when the fire comes down and incinerates all you people. It hasn't happened yet, but the 40 days isn't up. So instead of rejoicing with these repentant Ninevites, Jonah throws a pity party and he invites only himself. You see, the same drowning runaway that blessed God for his salvation in the belly of a fish, this former rebel recently reinstated as God's prophet, he laments God's deliverance of Nineveh from the wrath to come. Brethren, nothing ever good comes of pouting over God's kindness to others when he has been so kind to us. He who delivered Jonah from the belly of the fish, don't you think he'd be delighted in God's deliverance of these Ninevites from the wrath of God that would certainly consume them? So Jonah pouted over Nineveh's repentance. Secondly, he raged against God's mercy. That's really the bottom of it. So pouting Jonah goes a safe distance outside the city. He builds himself a little shelter, a little observatory, and waits with bated breath, hoping against hope that the fire of God would yet fall upon the city. Brethren, it's a sad commentary upon the state of our souls if we are angry with God over his kindness to others, even toward our enemies. Ultimately, we should have the desire not that he would consume them, but that he would convert them. But how often we're just like Jonah? Lord, give it to them. They've got it coming. Well, yes, we had it coming too. But he didn't give us what we deserved, but yet we don't plead that regarding God's dealings with other people. How far from God was the heart of Jonah? Who in their right mind would begrudge God freedom to show mercy to other sinners. But see, Jonah wasn't in his right mind. Would we prefer that God would so deal with us as we would hope he would deal with them? Therefore, notice... Thirdly, that Jonah indulged irrational emotions. Jonah wasn't really thinking, he was just feeling. He was just, he wasn't reasoning, he was emoting. Jonah's priorities and perspectives were all afoul. You look at God's dealings with him. And Jonah's response, he's he's all aglow about the plant that shades him while he glowers at the Ninevites, rejoicing in growing vegetation and yet careless about dying humanity, delighting that God shelters him from the burning sun while he prays for God's fire to fall upon these poor Ninevites. Then he's grief-stricken about the plant dying while He's careless about the never dying souls of the Ninevites. Oh Lord, how could you do this to this plant? You see, he's elated one moment over a relatively trivial matter and he's cast down the next and finally he's suicidal. He laments the withering of a shade plant while showing not an atom of grief at the prospect of God's judgment falling upon the Ninevites, I hope you're not sitting here thinking this morning, well, that's Jonah, that ain't me. Jonah's cut from the same bolt of fallen and damaged cloth that all of us are. That Jonah defended his anger and impatience with God underscores his sorry spiritual state. When first questioned by God about his right to be angry, the pouting prophet responded with guilty silence. How can he answer God? Do you have good reason to be angry? Well, he goes farther into derangement later as God deals with him. He knows he doesn't have an answer earlier then he thinks he has a good answer later. But when God repeats his question, Jonah retorts. He flies at God in an angry rage, justifying his discontentment. Spurgeon says, Poor Jonah. How bitterly he spoke even to his God. Surely he had forgotten the whale's belly. And brethren, let's be honest with ourselves. Some of us are like Jonah. We're slow learners. It has been suggested that even in his peevishness, Jonah cannot escape being a type of Jesus, albeit a sinful one. Jonah's peevishness foretokens Jesus' passion when our Lord testified that my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. Matthew 26, 38. Our Lord's grief in the Garden of Gethsemane anticipated the cruel cross upon which he would die for sinners bless Jesus that his blood atones for all of our sins even when we like Jonah speak unadvisedly with our lips so those are some of the evil fruits of Jonah's petulance let us now consider the deep roots of Jonah's petulance Jonah hated the Ninevites and longed for their destruction. Why? Because he was out of sorts with God. He was out of sorts with his authority, with his providence, and with his heart. We might hope that Jonah's rescue from drowning, his renewal in the big fish, as he wrestled with God in prayer and his recommission to go to Nineveh to preach... And God's marvelous blessing upon his ministry would have made God and other the things of God all the more precious to Jonah. But not so. He just tramples them under his peevish feet. Jonah's misery, I suggest, was rooted in his sinful attitude toward the Lord. Notice first, Jonah's petulance is rooted in his rebellion against the authority of God's word. Jonah rebelled against God's word in chapter one. God said, go and preach. And Jonah said, no, I won't. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. We've seen it before. God says, go, and Jonah says, no. God said Nineveh and Jonah said Tarshish. Jonah rebelled against God's authority because he was committed to his personal autonomy. Not your way, but my way. He wanted not God's will, but his own will to be done. Further, Jonah rebelled against the word of God used to bring the Ninevites to repentance. Repentance. This bothered Jonah. God's word, the same word that he preached, God sent forth his spirit with power. He subdued their evil hearts. He granted them the gifts of faith and repentance, but Jonah's heart remained stubbornly set against God. Brethren, we cannot submit to God's authority while living in rebellion against his word. It's in his word we learn his will. We can never be holy, much less happy when we're living in rebellion to the word of God. Secondly, Jonah's petulance is rooted in his resistance to the teaching of providence. If we are rebellious against God's word, we will be resistant to his affirming providence. God worked several miracles to cheer up his peevish prophet. Martin Luther speaks about God's dealing with Jonah here as a mother with a petulant little child. He's kind of playing with him to kind of cheer him up, to get his mind off of those things that so troubled him. Whether that be the case or not, we know first that he shades him by the speedy growth of it Shady vine. It's hot out there. Jonah builds himself a shelter and God causes this big leafy plant to grow up and cover it. So Jonah, if you're going to be out there and pout, I'm going to make it comfortable for you. It's like my parents. When I told them I was going to run away from home, I heard the exact response I didn't want to hear. My mom says, can I help you pack? Then he miraculously removes the shade plant when Jonah glories in the plant rather than in the God who made it. Finally, God sends a blasting, burning wind in a further attempt to jar Jonah from his foolish funk. He'd been dealing with him with kid gloves to this point. Now he sends the furious hot wind, withers the plant, Jonah doesn't have a place to hide from the scorching sun and that brutal wind. God always deals with us kindly, graciously, before he has to turn up the heat to get our attention. You see, God is busy working all things together, both cheering and challenging for our good. So he did with Jonah. But Jonah's not getting the message because he's consumed with self pity and anger toward God. Things aren't working out the way I like. I planned other things when I preached. These people have repented. And I'm still waiting for the fire to fall, it hasn't fallen yet. We get to the root when we consider, thirdly, that Jonah's petulance is rooted in his rejection of God's gracious heart. How unlike God we often are. And you see, this has been the nub of Jonah's problem all along. This is why he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites in the first place. And then when he does, he's peeved at God. Revealing himself not in wrath but in mercy. See, Jonah's problem was that he was a stranger to the heart of God, it was foreign to him. Oh, he, he knew that God was gracious, but he didn't want him to be gracious. God, give it to them. They've got it coming for a long time. And now, isn't it time for the fire to fall? In fact, he was afraid that God would mercifully rescind his word to overthrow the city. Verse 2, chapter 4. But he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I I didn't want to leave my home. That's why I I didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's why I, I went the other direction. I could see this coming. It's like the handwriting was in the clouds that you're going to show mercy to these terrible people. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew that you're this kind of a God. And when you gave me a message of judgment rather than mercy, I was tickled pink. But things didn't fall out the way I thought they would when I preached. So let us consider, after looking at Jonah's petulance, at Jehovah's patience. God's patience is really the subtext in all of his dealings with Jonah. See this all the way through, and it comes out plainly here. Notice two points. First, he persistently pursued his wayward prophet. You know, it was Jonah's folly to think that he could escape from God. He could go somewhere where God wasn't. So the Lord patiently pursued him from Hefer to Joppa, and then from Joppa on a sailing ship bound for faraway Spain. And on board, God patiently pursued Jonah, allowing him space to repent while he's sleeping in the, in the berth of the ship. Then by sending a storm slowly ratcheting up its violence. And then by the kings urging him to call upon his God because their gods weren't doing any good. And then by discovering him to the sailors who fingered Jonah and then who valiantly sought to save Jonah's life before finally and unwillingly casting him into the sea. God's patience with Jonah is evident in pursuing him into the waters of the Mediterranean. He wasn't there alone. No, he appointed a fish. He was with him when he entered the belly of the fish. He was with Jonah when he wrestled from a posture of, of doubt to one of faith inside the belly of the fish. It was God who opened the mouth of the fish and pushed Jonah out onto dry land. He traveled with Jonah to Nineveh, and he gave him a sermon to preach to the Ninevites. Jehovah was Jonah all the way. Brethren, if we didn't have Jonah chapter 4, we might conclude that the prophet might have been the happiest of all people. God miraculously blessed his preaching. The wicked city from the highest to the lowest repented, By the grace of God, shouts of rejoicing would have rung through Nineveh like peals of thunder. We would think that Jonah would be leading a procession of worshipers in ecstatic hymns of praise to the God of their deliverance. But instead of singing, Jonah is sulking. And rather than remaining and rejoicing, he slinks out of the city, fuming over God's mercy to these penitent Ninevites. I suggest to you that more than ever before, Jonah was in a bad way and desperately needed the Lord's patient pursuit. And so God pursues a pouting prophet from Nineveh to his rude observatory outside the city. Oh, the patience of God with his wayward people. The Lord is resolved to complete the work that he'd begun in his prophet. Bless God that he doesn't abandon us in our sin, but is committed to pursuing us so that he might finish the work of his grace within us. You see, our God pursues us because he is the God of persevering patience. If we were Jonah's God, we would have run out of patience with him long time ago. Maybe even before he got on the ship down in Java. And he's been with Jonah all the way through to this very moment. And so he persistently pursued his wayward prophet. Notice, secondly, he gently reproved his pouting prophet. The book of Jonah teaches us that sin distorts our view of God and as a result, it warps our perception of reality. What we think about God determines how we think about the world. Think about ourselves, think about others, think about our sin. Consider Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance. He faithfully preaches and the Lord marvelously blesses the whole city of some 600,000 People is brought to God, by God to turn from their wickedness and brutality to the Lord. But instead of reveling in this colossal outpouring of God's salvation, the prophet sulks and pouts. He's angry with God. And so he rails against him for his mercy while he justifies his own sinful rebellion and displeasure we saw that in verse 2 but God would impress upon his sulking prophet a lesson from his own character and his dealing with the Ninevites you see the same divine grace and compassion long suffering and abundant loving kindness Jonah would have God withhold from the Ninevites is exactly what the prophet himself needed now more than ever Bless God that he wasn't to Jonah what Jonah thought he should have been to Nineveh. Jonah would have have God refuse his mercy to Nineveh while himself needing a heaping dose of that mercy. How easy it is for us to see other people's sins but not to see our own. See their needs and not our own. This is the second time that Jonah finds himself at cross purposes with God. Earlier earlier he ran from God's calling and yet God restored him to his favor and mission. And here he reviles God's mercy. But brethren, notice that the Lord did not cast off his troubled and tempestuous prophet as damaged goods as beyond repair, consigning him to the scrap heap of humanity, concluding that he'd failed just too many times to be restored. Surely Jonah was in a bad way. Before he ran from God, now he would correct God. And yet Jonah's gracious long-suffering, God once more commits himself to restoring his fallen child. We behold the meekness and gentleness of Christ in his patient dealings with his petulant prophet. You see, Paul preached what God practiced. Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26 about dealing with this kind of people. God in his dealing with Jonah, dealt with him with gentleness, correcting him who is in opposition if perhaps God may grant him repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and he may come to his senses. How gently the Lord corrected his hostile prophet. He who possesses all authority in heaven and earth and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, you see he condescends to instruct Jonah with leading questions. We might say, even coddling him, kindly burdening his conscience with the weighty implications of his folly. First, he gently asked the hard hearted Jonah a crucial question that exposed Jonah's hard heartedness toward the Ninevites and his rebellion against God's mercy. Do you have good reason to be angry? He asked him this earlier. He asks him it again. And then he allowed Jonah time to ponder his question as he built a shelter before visiting him with those instructive miracles. And after watching Jonah's tirade over God's removal of the shade plant and the scorching heat, hearing again his death wish, the Lord once more calmly reveals himself to his perturbed prophet. We're in a state of derangement. God is showing consummate mercy and kindness to us. We're reminded that in whatever state of mind we might be, the Lord knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Infinite wisdom will use the most effective means required to lead us to repentance and again to the truth and from our folly back to faith. So the Lord displays the gentleness of wisdom in his dealing with Jonah, knowing that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Jonah was speaking that harsh word that stirs up anger, But God didn't respond in kind. God knows that it's the soft tongue that breaks the bone. Let's read verses 9 through 11 again. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, that was all his work, which came up overnight and perished overnight, again at God's hand. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? First, the Lord asked Jonah if it was reasonable for him to be angry about the plant, a mere creature created by God and disposed by God, a creature whose existence was really trivial in the grand scheme of things. Its death was but a small loss in comparison to the weightier issues of life, such as the destruction of Nineveh. Being angry with Really inconsequential manner matters demonstrates an imbalanced perspective and reveals wrong priorities. We can get so fixated upon things that are of no importance, and we can we miss the great and weightier matters. JC. Ryle wrote somewhere that there are only two things that we shouldn't fret about. only two things that we shouldn't fret about things that we can't change and things that we can change. If we can't change them, give it to God. If we can change them, do something about it. Jonah could not change God's sparing of Nineveh, but he could change his attitude toward God sparing Nineveh and the Ninevites. Jonah's defensive retort to the Lord's question shows that he completely missed God's meaning. He digs his heels in and he defends his anger to the death. You see, Jonah is utterly irrational here, implying that it is God, not himself, who is in the wrong. Brethren, observe that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. How much folly is bound up in unbounded anger? How criminally does Jonah fly off the handle at God? And what a mercy it is that the Lord doesn't strike him dead. And ourselves, when we follow Jonah's example, it is only right that hell is the home of the hot-headed. See, reason cannot grow in molten soil. Second, the Lord responds to Jonah's harangue by exposing his topsy-turvy values and ethics. We see this in verse 10. You see, Jonah's all happy about the plant that that God had made. He's hard-hearted toward the people that God saved. He's joyful about God's special creation, but he's angry at God's miraculous redemption. Finally, God speaks up In his own defense. And he contrasts his own grace and wisdom against Jonah's hard heartedness and folly. You see earlier Jonah had cast God's mercy in his teeth like it was a crime. Verse two. Now God vindicates his long suffering and mercy. He contrasts Jonah's fixation upon a perishing plant with his saving compassion of a great city full of never-dying souls, sparing countless thousands and even their animals from his wrath. See, Jonah had to come to realize that he, like the Ninevites, had everything to live for because God had been merciful to him. He needed to realize a fresh that the God who spared the Ninevites is the God whom he serves. He couldn't make God into his own hard-hearted image. Oh, that God would make him into his compassionate image. And brethren, isn't that what we need? So did the pouting prophet ever repent of his folly? We come to a cliffhanger at the end of Jonah, don't we? Did he come to his senses and rejoice in the mercy that God showed not only to Nineveh, but to his own soul? I I believe Spurgeon is probably correct when he writes. "Here ends the story of Jonah, which he he tells himself. And he did not add anything to it because nothing needs to be added. The Lord's question to him was altogether unanswerable and Jonah felt it to be so. Let us hope that during the rest of his life, he so lived as to rejoice in the sparing mercy of God. I'll seek to briefly present us with four lessons. First of all, Jonah teaches us. Jonah teaches that God is merciful and long-suffering and desires the salvation of sinners. This isn't a truth we come to for the first time in the New Testament. It's writ large over Jonah. God's mercy to wicked Nineveh bears eloquent testimony to his delight in saving sinners. And dear ones, how richly do we deserve God's unsparing wrath? And yet the coming of Christ into the world testifies that God desires to save the lost. John 3:17. We know John 3:16. John 3:17 follows on its heels. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The door of grace is still open the message of mercy is still ringing in our ears there comes a day when that door will be closed and God will speak and judge Jesus said to a, a penitent tax gatherer for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost the dear ones beware do not mistake God's mercy and long suffering toward us with his approval of our sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. The cross of Christ stands as an eternal monument not only to the saving mercy of God, but also to his hatred of sin. Had Nineveh not repented, they would have perished under the wrath of God. And the same is true of all sinners today. If you do not believe in Christ and repent of your sins, you will perish justly forever in hell. John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Secondly, Jonah teaches us that we need the heart of God toward needy sinners. How unlike God, might I say, how ungodlike, how ungodly we can be toward those who desperately need God's mercy. How fixated we may be upon temporal pleasures and concerns and focused upon the details of our lives, that we may be blind to the spiritual needs and eternal concerns of those whom God brings into our life. We're just too busy. Brethren, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But we have to ask ourselves, do we take pleasure in their salvation? Jonah went to Nineveh with God's message, but he went without God's heart. That was his problem. Let's be honest. We're more like Jonah than we want to admit. We may have God's message, but are we driven by God's mercy? Thirdly, Jonah teaches that God will appoint whatever means or methods he deems best to recall his people from folly. For Jonah it was striking, he, he hurled a storm, he appointed a fish. He appointed a plant to shade, a worm to wither, a hot wind to blast, especially his word. And for us, God may appoint certain things to recall us to himself when we go wandering far astray. He may send unbounded blessings to us so that we're caused to say, Lord, why me? Did you give me all these things? You know what I deserve. You didn't give me what I do deserve. You give me what I don't deserve. Preventive providences. We may have our mindset to go a certain way into sin and God throws up roadblocks. And it it's very obvious that he's doing something to keep us on the road, the narrow road that leads to life. And grievous tragedies. That we're in the home of the morning because that's the latter end of all men and it causes us to think about our latter end and to be prepared for the day in which we gasp our last breath. And faithful Christians that come alongside us, encourage us in the way of righteousness, reprove us when we're walking away. That the Lord chastens those whom he loves is clear, From the book of Jonah as well. It is for discipline that you endure. Says the writer to the Hebrews. God deals with you as with sons. His heart is invested in your well-being. He's going to withhold no good thing from you as you walk uprightly. Finally, Jonah teaches that the ultimate goal of God's work in us is to make us more like his son. Jonah needed the heart of God. He had the word of God, but he didn't have the heart of God. God intends to conform us to the image of a greater than Jonah, even his beloved son. That's why Paul could write in Philippians 1, 6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. As I had many occasions to say before, brethren, we're all a piece of work, aren't we? We're keeping God busy, keeping him busy, keeping his promise, keeping him busy, showing his compassion and mercy. Keeping him busy, administering the faithful wounds of a loving father. I conclude with Paul's statement in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also glorified, uh, justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We're a work in progress. The work's not done. One day it will be. We have been justified. Paul speaks of our glorification as having already been done. We know that that good work will be accomplished by Christ until the day that we see Jesus himself. You see, God did not intend to leave Jonah as he found him, nor does he intend to leave us as he finds us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would take the things that we have considered this morning from your precious word, uh, we pray that you would use that written word to conform us to the image of the incarnate word, that that living spirit, that body of truth that you have communicated would make us more like Jesus, that we would have the compassionate heart of God beating within us. We would remember whose we are, And remember what we've come out of. To be brought into the family of God. Lord, if there's any here this day. Who knows not the God of Jonah. We pray that you would take the truth. you You would work it into their hearts. That you would hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Calling them to turn from their sins turn from their folly and their lawlessness and their self-centeredness and their idolatry and following and loving and serving the things of this world rather than the God who made them and so Lord do the work that only you can do we pray that this would be the day of grace for those who are yet dead in trespasses and sins Lord you promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Lord fill their mouths with a with a cry to you a heart that would plead that would say God be merciful to me the sinner so that they might go home this day justified for we pray this in Jesus name